Does the Jewish temple and its services of worship play a role in Christian Eucharistic practice? David Stubbs is the professor of ethics and theology at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan. In this episode, Sherry Osteen talks with David about his definition of Christian Eucharist and how the central meaning of the Lord's Supper relates to the central worship practices of the Jerusalem temple. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. David, thank you so much for talking with me today. Well, it's a pleasure to talk to you, Sherry. So we are talking about the Eucharist today. And so it seems right to start with the most basic of questions. What is the Eucharist? Well, the Eucharist, there's a lot of different ways of even tackling that question. As you realize, there's one way it's a very simple question, but another way it's quite complex. I like to think of it as the most central right of the followers of Jesus Christ. I mean, we have, uh, we have table, we have the table, we have the pulpit, and we also have the font, which are at the center of Christian worship. But there is something very, um, very central to, um, to the Eucharist. And I, I like to come at it as a rite that the church does, a rite or a ritual. And in that rite, God is present in a special way, and the kingdom of God is breaking into our world. And in it, there are specific gifts that are exchanged between God and God's people. So that when I enter into that question about what the Eucharist is, I like to think of it as a rite. I like to think of God and the kingdom of God's presence. And I like to think of a gift exchange, which is happening. And so as you talk about some of the meanings of the Eucharist, then you look at, at what kind of gifts are being exchanged between God and God's people. That's beautiful. And why did you choose to use Eucharist instead of, say, communion or the Lord's Supper? Well, the Eucharist has become, um, well, I guess there's two reasons. One is it's become a much more ecumenical way of talking about it. For example, in the, in the important ecumenical document, Baptism, Eucharist, and Ministry by the World Council of Churches, they use the word Eucharist. So it's, a, it's both an ecumenical word as well as a very um, old word. It goes back into the very um, it's biblical, you know, when they talk about giving thanks or uh, in some of the early church documents, they, um, they use the word Eucharist as explaining what's going on, this idea of giving thanks. And so I, I like both the, um, the oldness of it, the ecumenicalness of it, as well as the biblical roots of it, as well as the content. This idea of giving thanks is a, a really important part of what we do in that right. I have to assume there's also a deeply personal connection if you spend as much time as you have writing a book. Can you explain what motivates you personally to explore this in such depth? Oh, that's a good question. I, I guess a more broad answer is that the, um, the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper is communion has been more and more important to me over time as um, just in my own Christian life. Would you be willing to share the story? Oh, sure. So I, I guess one story to be told is how I got involved in this, um, in the whole project of trying to reconnect the Eucharist to its Jewish roots. For me, it really began um, when I was writing uh, an earlier book. It was a theological commentary on the Book of Numbers, and you know, I'm a, I, I teach theology and ethics, and so a commentary in the Book of Numbers may not be the first thing that comes to mind. But it was part of the series where they're we're really trying to. It's part of the Baker Brazos series, 
which is really the first series that was very mindful of asking theologians and ethicists to approach the scriptures again from a theological and ethical um, uh, standpoint um, with a little bit of frustration with um, some of the ways the commentary series had asked mainly historical questions about texts. And so they really wanted a um, they wanted to um, highlight coming at the um, at the scriptures through a theological angle, and so I said yes, and it changed my life. I I fell in love. Did with- you ever spend so much time in numbers? <laughs> no. Well, I I well you know what particularly is in numbers, but uh, I I grew in love with that book, and I'm really satisfied with the the time I spent there. I mean, it's um, the book is all about the you could say about the people of God. And both their high calling as well as their miserable failures in living into that high calling. But in Numbers, the, at least the first part of the book of Numbers is um, is the very end of um, Israel's Sinai experience. I like to talk about it as the very first part of the book of Numbers is the um, executive summary of the strategic plan of Sinai. Oh, wow. And, and in that, they're summing up a lot of Israel's worship. And so during my time... I mean, I spent almost a full year, full time looking into the book of Numbers and getting involved with Israel and its worship life as well as its ethical life. And um, I began to see all these connections between uh, the central practices that they did at the tabernacle, which then became translated into the central practices at the temple and the Eucharist. And I thought, oh, my gosh, why didn't anybody tell me this? And um, I saw all these parallels, all these reconnections, and it was very meaningful for me. And then I began to look in the scholarly literature, and I found out that nobody was making these connections, except there, those connections were being made in the early church. But in the last 200 years, um, or two to 300 years, in modern, in modern commentaries, there's been very few people who have made those connections back to these temple practices as the as the matrix or the, um, how would you say, the horizon out of which um, Jesus got the great idea to have this practice of breaking bread with his disciples and to see these connections back to the temple practices and the feasts and the celebrations which were taking place at the temple was um, really eye-opening to me. So noticing that there was this kind of dearth of scholarly literature on this, I said, well, maybe this is a project I should take on to try and uh, make these connections and draw these these uh, connections forward. Yeah. And certainly there's no shortage of literature out there about the Eucharist. There's lots of metaphors and lots of churches have their own traditions and theologies around it. But it seems like you explored a way to make a unique contribution to the field. Do you have a sense for why this has been so neglected? Yeah, that was an important question for me too. It's like, well, am I simply crazy in seeing these things, um, these connections here too? But I, I did find one conservative Catholic scholar and one rather liberal Protestant scholar who did make these connections, Brent Petra and Margaret Barker. But looking through, I really believe that there is um, a conjunction of a lot of prejudices which have taken place in the last couple of hundred years and even before then about why we've had these blind spots to these connections. One I think is just the general anti-Semitism of the Christian Church from its um, from its beginnings, you know, fourth century onwards, um, uh, and and before that. But I saw a lot of documents that that were taking place in the fourth century and onwards that I found were a little bit shocking to me about the um, 
very strategic disconnection from earlier practices that uh, that the church was making. So part of its anti-Semitism, I think also a lot of scholarship in biblical studies has been um, the Protestants have led the way. But um, with Protestants, there's also a little bit of an anti-Catholic sentiment. And so anything having to do with the temple or priests or rituals like that tends to smell pretty Catholic to Protestants. And so they've um, often turned a blind eye to them or downplayed those things. And uh, even within the historical critical scholarship of the last couple centuries, within the historical critical method, if you know anything about J, E, P, and D. Um, I have to dust off my Old Testament. Yeah. <laughs> book, but I think I remember. Yeah, the Yahwist, the Eloist, the uh, priestly material, and the material that comes from the Deuteronomist. Well, P, the priestly material, is often seen as late. It's um, in the scholarship. It, uh, uh, often pejorative terms are used of it. And so it's, uh, I think all the priestly materials, which has to do with the worship at the temple, um, is often downplayed. And uh, Protestants in general have taken their cue from the, the prophets of the Old Testament and have not seen uh, sort of the temple worship of Israel as being as important. So there's just been a lot of reasons, you could say a little bit of prejudices, which I think have um, created a few blind spots for uh, for modern Protestant um, Christian, you know, in terms of anti-Jewish um, authors that have not seen these connections as strongly as they could. You state really explicitly early in the book that one of your goals is to reconnect things, to create reconnections. So I assume you're talking about overcoming some of these prejudices, but are there other reconnections? What do you mean by that? Well, I think the the strongest ones are, in the book, I talk about typology, which again is a a subject matter, which is just kind of coming back. um, I don't know if you'd want to call it into fashion, but, um, but there's ways of reading scripture in which you see connections between what goes on in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and that begins to kind of ground how you understand what's going on. And so, you know, definitely you see that um, that there is connections between the Eucharist and the Passover. I mean, you see that quite explicitly in the in the Gospels. But also there's connections between that and some of the other pilgrim feasts, uh, the pil- pilgrim feast of Pentecost, as well as the pilgrim feast of the Feast of Booths, so these things you can also find in scripture, and certainly they're drawn out in the early church. And there's even connections between the Eucharistic practice and some of the daily, weekly, and monthly celebrations at the temple, too, that are brought out in, um, for example, the Didache, some of the earliest Christian literature uh, um, that we have of, of Eucharistic, that refers to Eucharistic practice explicitly. Um, so the, these kind of connections, the typological connections between practices at the temple and the Eucharist um, are some of the things I want to highlight. And with those, what that does, I think, is it grounds our Eucharistic theology really strongly in these biblical connections. You, you know, for example, I love Calvin's Eucharistic theology. I think it's really good. But that always brings up the question is like, well, why is Calvin better than Thomas Aquinas or Luther or somebody else? How do you make that kind of argument? For me, I see grounding Eucharistic theology in these typological connections back to temple practices as a way of of grounding it in, um, in scripture, first of all, but also is creating certain kind of ecumenical possibilities for where we're able to 
uh, in, in some ways, um, I don't know if systematize is the right word, but we can um, create um, understandings of our Eucharistic practice that make sense and, and uh, create a certain kind of biblical foundation, I guess you could say, for um, understanding the Eucharist and weighing our practices and our theologies against. So I, I see it as both a way to making these connections both grounds it in the Bible and creates a certain kind of ecumenical potential that I find really attractive. How do you think that potential would play out in a local congregation? Well, it's interesting. I, I think it already does to a certain extent, given a lot of the liturgical renewal that's happened in the last, um, I guess, since the 60s is when liturgical renewal uh, really caught on, it, it, especially in mainline churches. Uh, a lot of our Eucharistic or Lord's Supper liturgies or our prayers that we have already are drawing from a lot of the early Christian literature. And so there's ways that the liturgies and the songs that we have are already making some of these connections. And so I, I feel like making that more explicit and showing uh, these connections can actually help us to even understand some of the practice that we already have going. So that's that's one thing to be said is there's, um, uh, for example, in, in I guess my last chapter, I point out that there's a lot of contemporary Christian music that talks a lot about the temple um, as it's working with the Eucharist. This way is um, perhaps a way of clarifying and, and making more explicit why, in fact, we find those connections uh, to be so, um, to make sense to us already. Thinking about the Eucharist as a practice and in some contexts, a very routine practice, in other contexts, maybe once a year. Can you think of an example or two of a specific celebration of the Eucharist that opens up some of these possibilities? Well, first of all, I think at our, our seminary, our Western Theological Seminary, is uh, we've yeah. already drawn a lot from these kind of practices. Um, it's certainly, uh, some of the renewal movements like a Tze or the Iona community also do. and. Um, and uh, a church I was in in San Francisco, Golden Gate Community Church, had beautiful Eucharistic practices that that did as well. Church of the Servant in Grand Rapids, or or on a, a from a very different tradition, Saint Gregory of Nyssa Church in San Francisco. So there's a lot of different kind of churches out there that um, uh, that are already making these connections. I read too, you know, in I believe it was Dan Kimball's book that was um, looking at some of the emerging church movements too. One of the features in at least some emerging church literature and practices is actually drawing some connections back to their Jewish roots. So I, I think that some of these kind of practices are already already going on. So as I was reading, I couldn't help but think about my own experiences with communion, was what we called it um, growing up, but. It struck me too in connecting it more intimately with the temple that a lot of Christian communities have to grapple with the inclusivity and exclusivity of the table. Mm. I'm wondering if you could think through that a little bit. Um, there are lots of Christian practices that involve either a closed or an open table. And is that something that came up a lot for you as you thought about this? Not so much in this project. I mean, I did write a paper for the PCUSA on open table practices. And it's interesting when you start looking at something like temple practices and, and linking the um, Eucharist back to it, there could be a tendency for it to be more closed. In other words, it's like as you think about temple practice with Israel, it's the Israelites who are coming to the temple. 
And so there is aspects of temple practice that we need to work through and evaluate in terms of our, our Christian practice. But what's interesting is even encoded in the temple, you have do, do have the court of the Gentiles. There's a, an openness to people who are outside Israel. And um, all the visions of the temple and the prophets show that the temple should be expanding outwards. And so there's even encoded in the very structure of the temple is a desire to have what is happening with the people of God expanding out into all nations. So there's a movement toward inclusion, even though it's definitely a covenant community at the center. So perhaps it just, um, you could say that this doesn't solve the issue, but there's resources even uh, within the temple itself that speak into some of the struggles that Christian churches are having around this question. Thank you. I love that. And especially thinking of if it is an expansion to include the Gentiles, I mean, in part, that already begins in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And we would assume that the Christians take up that mantle in ministry. So how do worship spaces facilitate um, or inhibit what you're describing? That's a great question. I think it's in chapter 10 or chapter 11. I actually deal a little bit with architecture. And um, I draw from a number of people. But one person who's thought about this uh, quite a bit is Louis Boyer. And um, in his his book, if I'm recalling the title correctly, I think it's called Liturgy and Architecture. But he looks at the that some of the most important things that we should pay attention to architecturally are the central points of our ritual practice. And so just to translate that really quickly, that would be pulpit, font, and table. These are the places where connections, sacred spaces, places where we are expecting God to show up, places that are the center of what we call ordinary means of grace. And so especially in our design of our worship spaces, we should pay attention to how God's presence may be or may not be expected or represented and where pulpit, font, and table are and how that all relates to the larger congregation that's surrounding them. So I I would think that you should think about symbols for God, symbols for pulpit, font, and table, as well as um, how the arrangement of the... uh, um, of the congregation, how it's suggestive of what might be happening in these um, in these spaces. So, in a sense, you can have all sorts of different outside architectural features, but you want a space that ideally would be suggestive of God's presence in the middle of God's people, who are um, and at the center of their life are some of these ritual practices having to do with with preaching, with the table as well as with the font. So part of what we've been talking about is what you describe as cultivating a table imagination. And you mentioned briefly music earlier, and we've talked about space, but you identified two others, intentions and prayers. So we'll get to prayers in just a minute, but I'm curious, intentions was the least familiar to me. And I'm wondering if you can describe what you mean by that. It's uh, at the most basic level, I'm, I'm, I want, I'm interested in what people think about when they come to the table. It's like, what are actually, what are people thinking about? It seems like this is kind of an important thing. And how do we begin to teach people really simple, central meanings about how they should be coming to the table? Um, the word Eucharistic intention comes from, especially from the Catholic tradition, where the priest is said to have certain kind of Eucharistic intentions. For me, it seems even Uh, just as important, is the intentions of everyone when they come to the table. And so I I 
spend some time thinking about the kind of intentions or, or the thoughts or the attitudes that people would have um, as they come to the table. And I suggest that there should be five central ones. And these are based on the five, what I consider the five central meanings of uh, temple practice, which then also I think are, are the um, five central meanings of the Eucharist that we can find in New Testament scripture as well as in the early church practice. Now, this is not a, a trivia test, but do you remember the five that you identify? Sure. The first one has to do with just the meaning of the temple itself. The meaning, I, I think some of the central meanings of the temple, are it's very simple. God is here and God's kingdom is breaking into the world in this place. So both the tabernacle and the temple, they, they suggested that that's what people are coming to encounter. They're coming to encounter God's presence as well as um, this is a place where the kingdom of God is breaking in. So that would be the first thing is like, as people come to a Eucharistic service, I would want people to think I'm going there to encounter God. And I am looking for ways to, uh, to see how God's kingdom is breaking in and how I can participate in that. And then some of the central meanings of, of the, uh, the daily, the weekly and the monthly um, practice at the temple is it had to do with um, a, about a thanksgiving a recognition and a thanksgiving for God's creation and providence and a commitment to be just basically good creatures in the middle of here too. So I would suggest that people would think that one of the things they bring when they come to the table is I'm going to thank God for the creation and for God's providence in our lives, recognizing that God's gift comes first, but that we, in our response to that, are offering a gift of our thanksgiving, a Eucharist. And then with the three pilgrim feasts at the temple, which really outline the story of salvation, in the Passover, we see that God has done something to save us. You know, the Passover was God saving us from uh, the oppression um, of Egypt and bringing us, uh, bringing us out of death into life in that way. And so for us as Christians, we want to remember Christ's sacrifice on the cross, God's gift to us in Christ, and then also remembering that, that sacrifice and living our lives in accordance with that too. So remembrance of Christ's sacrifice would be a third one. Then the fourth one has to do with the Pentecost or, or the um, Shavuot pilgrim feast of Israel. And that was actually a celebration of the covenant and a recommitment to it of people. And so in the Eucharist, we want to open ourselves to union with Christ and with one another, recommitting ourselves to the new covenant realities of the spirit of God coming into us, uniting us with Christ. So that would be a fourth one, is that we want to open ourselves and recommit ourselves to the new covenant. And the fifth one, um, in the, uh, it's the Sukkot celebration of Israel, is they're looking forward to the great feast to come. And so it's a hope for and celebration of that feast. In the same way as Christians, we come to the table and we want to open ourselves and, um, and joyfully anticipate God's kingdom when it comes in fullness. And so it, these are not new, you would say, new meanings of the Eucharist, remembering Christ's sacrifice, celebration in the new covenant, looking forward to the feast to come. But I find them to be, it's really helpful to link them back to the Pilgrim Feast of Israel and see how these get translated into a new key, given Christ's work. Yeah, and it seems even some, very simply the first one, expecting to experience God, um, is increasingly yeah. profound in a world that's secular and perhaps skeptical about that, our ability to experience that. Yes, yeah. 
so even as I just listed those five things out, uh, hopefully people will recognize, I mean, the um, people will recognize what they're already doing in the Eucharist in some way. Perhaps the Thanksgiving for creation and providence, that, that may be one that is a, uh, how would you say, it's not as highlighted as, as typically in a lot of Christian Eucharistic celebrations. But, um, but I think those five things together, they should sound familiar because that's, uh, I think, at the center. But what this reconnection to the temple does is it makes sense of those. And it also gives us some categories by which to um, organize our thinking about the Eucharist as well as, as um, just a simple way of, of thinking about which, what we should come uh, to the table with, what kind of expectations we should, we should bring as people who are participating in it, and certainly as worship planners or people who are presiding over the Eucharist or planning it in some ways, I think to highlight these different five themes in the words we use and the ways that we um, organize our space, uh, think about how we teach people about what's going on at the Eucharist, I think those five um, central themes can be really useful to people. All right, so full disclosure to folks listening, David and I work together at Western Seminary, and I've had the privilege of being in chapel when you were able to preside over communion. You've given this a lot of thought. What's it like for you to be at the table in that way? Oh my gosh. I was just talking to um, somebody. You know, I, I always, I feel so nervous about preaching, right? Preaching, I, I, you can put me in front of a classroom and I feel quite comfortable and confident. Preaching's hard for me. And uh, I perhaps I just need a, a little bit more regular practice. I do it um, not as often as I teach classes, but I have to say I just love presiding at the table. It's um, it's such a beautiful thing for me, and to be able to pray these Eucharistic prayers and to help people into that space is is um, just a beautiful thing for me. So I feel quite privileged and quite glad to be part of that. At the end of your book, you share a prayer. Um, that you acknowledge, you borrow heavily from other sources, but it is the Eucharistic celebration. And I'm wondering if you'd be willing to read that. What I try to do in that prayer is actually to highlight those five different meanings and kind of connect them back to the temple, uh, just through some of the metaphors and some of the words that are there too, as well as just highlight the central meanings. Maybe I'll just share the second part with you. This would be in technical liturgical language. This is the anamnesis section where we're remembering Christ's work. And so for me, I want to highlight some of the connections back to the Passover and the Passover feast at the temple. So um, here's a portion of the prayer. When sin had scarred the world, you entered into covenant to renew the whole creation. You chose a people as your own, Abraham, Sarah, and their children. When they had fallen into slavery, you heard their cries and delivered them from oppression. You gave them your presence and showed them how to live. You filled them with hunger for yourself, for a peace that would last, and for a justice that would never fail. From them you raised up Jesus, your son, the living bread, in whom ancient hungers are satisfied. His perfect life, with neither fault nor sin, is the true unleavened bread. Through the bitterness of his own suffering and death, he accomplished a new exodus for us. He defeated sin, the forces of evil, and death itself through his obedient life, death, and resurrection. He frees us and opens a way to abundant and eternal life. He is our Passover lamb. In this meal, we remember his sacrifice once upon the cross for the redemption of the whole world. So David, given all your 
study of the Eucharist, we are living in an unprecedented moment given the pandemic. Uh, people are worshiping via live stream or dialing into services or signing on via Zoom. And I'm curious if you could think with us about if there are any resources that you've discovered that can help us think about this really faithfully. Right. I, I guess maybe I, I'll just start out by saying that I, I'm simply interested and fascinated by the different responses to you know, the questions about how best to worship, how best or um, how best to do the Eucharist or whether or not to do the Eucharist that, that people are wrestling with during this time. I'm interested in all the different kinds of responses. Yeah, what have you seen so far? Well, I, uh, in the New York Times, there's um, an article about uh, different ways that uh, churches are responding to this. Yesterday, I was talking with a few students via Zoom about how they're handling worship and the Eucharist in particular in their churches. Um, and I've heard some very innovative answers. You know, there's drive up worship. There's um, uh, where they pass out the Eucharist to people in their cars. Um, I've uh, read a couple articles about debates taking place uh, within the Episcopal and Catholic worlds about how to respond to these questions. And um, yeah, there's a, a lot of different responses from, you know, well, we just can't do the Eucharist to some pretty interesting ways of uh, creating plastic bags and passing them out of the church door. That, or baking um, your own loaf at home from a common yeah. recipe. So I, I, I just think that there's um, a variety of ways that people are, are responding that I'm, I'm really interested in. As far as my own work on this, you know, and trying to link back the Eucharist to its Jewish roots, I, I guess I'd offer two things or two ways that I would begin to um, think about this. Um, the first one is not necessarily linked to Jewish roots, but it's, it's rather simple, is that in these discussions, I think we need to make a distinction between best practice and valid practice. In this situation, it seems pretty clear to me that that one benefit of this social distancing is that we will have a renewed appreciation for the bodily and social dimension of our worship, especially the Eucharist. I know I'm personally really hungry for the bodily presence of my fellow worshipers. I don't think anyone would suggest that the practices that we're attempting to do are, are going to turn out to be best practices in general. I think rather we're trying to figure out creative ways to deal with a very difficult situation. So if nothing else, this time will make us hungry for our non-virtual worship together, or at least that's, that's what I think. But as far as valid practice, or perhaps you could say best practice in a tough spot, I do find it helpful to think through you know, some of the central meanings of the Eucharist that emerges from the central meanings of the worship at the temple. Two in particular come into mind. You know, the first one is that in Eucharistic worship, God is present and the kingdom of God is breaking in. You know, for me, that's some of the main meanings of the temple. And so in a more COVID-inspired virtual Eucharist, we need to ask the question, you know, is God present? How is God present? And also, is the kingdom of God breaking in? Um, for me, that question points out that not only is the Eucharist about our individual connections to God, but it's also about the feeding and strengthening of our church as a, as a visible body. So that in our lives together and in our worship together, we, we reflect the ways of God's kingdom. It points us to a larger reality that exists outside of itself. Yeah, right? so can that happen virtually, right? Well, I suppose yes, sort of. 
<laughs> and, you know, perhaps the very question might want us to think through the ways in which our community might be as present to one another as possible in our COVID-shaped worship services. So for me, a drive-up worship with Eucharist, you know, kind of where you're handing out the um, bread and wine carefully through people's car windows, seems in some ways better than to me than simply a pre-recorded service in which people are simply watching. But there are other ways to create community. And, you know, alternatively, I think that having a core of at least two or three people physically present at the center of a virtually extended worship service seems to me the most appropriate or best practice. You know, I, I think about the common practice of uh, a church holding a Eucharistic service and then sending deacons out with bread and wine from that service to the sick and the shut-ins of the congregation, right? Something that happens um, in the present all the time. It seems like that's a very strong analogy for what could or, or is happening today. So for me, you know, another, another way of tackling this too, um, or I think some of the real issues as I think through what the real issues emerge with Eucharist when I think through what I would call the fourth central meaning of it, or that meaning that is a Christian extension of the temple celebration of Pentecost. In one place I write about this meaning this way, is that in the Eucharist we give thanks for and recommit ourselves to the new covenant way of Christ, and we call on the Holy Spirit to unite us with Christ and with one another, empowering us to live as Christ's body in the world. That's, um, you know, it's a, a meaning that centers on the new covenant and the way that the Holy Spirit is uniting us to Christ. So here are the questions about how the Holy Spirit is at work to unite us to Christ and empower us to be Christ's body come to the fore. You know, does the Holy Spirit first work on the elements of bread and wine to change them? And then in and through the changed elements of bread and wine, the Holy Spirit works to unite us to Christ, right? That's one way that people have have thought about this? Or is the Holy Spirit at work in a more general way in and through the action of eating and drinking bread and wine together in the midst of our worship? Um, well, different traditions have different ways of answering those questions. And so I think it will lead to different COVID time practices. You know, I've been intrigued by that Roman Catholic practice that I sort of mentioned before, where mass is celebrated and then the consecrated bread and wine is placed in plastic bags and set by the doors of the church for people to come by, take and use them together in the next virtual celebration. So, you know, that again is pretty similar to what happens when deacons take bread and wine from a service and then really have many Eucharists at the side of a hospital bed or in the home of a shut-in. And um, that seems somewhat similar to me. And so that, that seems like a uh, I don't know if it's the best way, but it seems like a, a certainly responsible way, given people's answers to how they understand that God, um, through the Holy Spirit and Christ, is at work in the Eucharist to link us to Christ as well as to be the body of Christ in the world. All right. So I have to ask, have you participated? Have you celebrated the Eucharist since worshiping bodies have started worshiping remotely in this season? I have not. My own congregation is really struggling with this question itself and trying to figure it, about, figure it out. So this is not a distant reality. There are ways of thinking about, and, and you know, and certain um, conversations that, that I actually talk about in my book that are really pressing for understanding that, you know, the elements, right, are, are best understood as the practices that are going on rather than merely the bread and wine. 
So if you think about that in some ways that you as a congregation are eating and drinking together and then the Holy Spirit is at work in, in all of you, in your own individual units as well as corporately to unite you to Christ as well as to one another, that makes sense. That will not stand the test against some people's narration of how God and the Holy Spirit is at work in the Eucharist, but it, it certainly makes a lot of sense to a lot of people. If nothing else, this is, is pressing us a little bit in our Eucharistic theologies, and, um, and we're finding out exactly what they might be and what is most important to us as well. So, you know, I, I, that's why I do think thinking about central meanings um, is a good place to start. You know, what are the central meanings? And then thinking about our practice, whether or not, I, I guess you could talk about valid versus invalid, but I prefer to think about in terms of best practices, whether or not those meanings come out in the celebrations as well or as best as they can. Well, thank you so much for taking time to think through this a little bit, David. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. What a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. You've been listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Interviews are conducted by me, Dale Rounds. And me, Sherry Osting. Our producer is Nee Otto Abrams, and our assistant producer is Amara Peterman. The Distillery is part of The Thread, an online platform with resources on culture, spiritual formation, and leadership. To find out more, visit thethread.ptsem.edu. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher. And while you're at it, leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. Until next time, thanks for listening.